You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. This is Play-By-Play Cast. My name is Joel Godet, and it's a podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business, of which, for the time being, I still am one, I think. <laughs> it has been it has been a week. That is That is for certain. Uh, Saturday was an interesting morning. Mid-American Conference decided it was going to postpone fall sports competitions, and with that, uh, I don't have any games to broadcast until at least basketball season now. After that announcement, a host of other conferences have followed suit as well, including at the highest FBS levels, Power 5 levels, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten It is a tough time for college sports, for college athletics, for those that participate in them, and for those that work in them. So uh, my thoughts out there to everybody who is dealing with what we are all dealing with as a country in the various stages that it affects your life. I know for me, I don't know what to do on weekends now. (laughs) Like... I'm the kind of person, and I think the fact that I host a podcast asking people about how they broadcast is is kind of a a, a view into this. Um, I'm the kind of person that like throws myself into this in its entirety. And once football season starts, play on Saturday, Sunday, listen back to the audio, get working on the next opponent, lay out my entire you know spotting boards, start doing a lot of homework. Monday, go to work, you know, Monday night, coaches radio show, Tuesday, go to practice, do some more prep, Wednesday, practice, prep, Thursday, for the most part, have your prep ready and study it, Friday, hop in the car with the rest of our crew, go on the road, and Saturday, call a game, or if it's at home, you know, get ready for a game at home, and then Saturday, call a game and do it all over again. I have no idea what I'm going to do on Saturdays and Sundays. Zero. On a professional level, one of the first sports that came back was mixed martial arts. UFC started running fanless fights, and they've done a really nice job with them, including uh, on Fight Island, or as John Oliver dubbed it, UFC. They've also run fights uh, in different places in the U.S., including Vegas, which is the host site of UFC 252. Coming up on Saturday night, uh, Mia Chich vs. Cormier 3. Sean O'Malley putting his undefeated record on the line Saturday night as well. Uh, on the call for UFC 252 is John Anik, who is a guy that I am stoked to have on this podcast because I am a, like, I'm a fringe. I told this to, to John. I am a fringe UFC fan. 
I don't know anything about mixed martial arts. Like, I don't know the slightest thing. I have zero idea what's happening in the octagon. I don't know the strategy. When they're on the ground, I don't know who's in the position of power. Like, it looks like that guy is on top and should be in a good spot, but actually the guy on the bottom is... I, I don't know. But the sport intrigues the hell out of me. Uh, I've never bought a pay-per-view. I have seen one. It was in 2010 when Brock Lesnar fought for the title. It was on at a bar that I was at in Port Charlotte, Florida. And I knew who Brock Lesnar was, so I watched. I will watch it if it's on cable television. Like, I'll watch undercards all the time if they're on. I will watch replays if they're on. I will always scroll through Twitter to see clips of stuff. Used to be to watch entire Ronda Rousey fights. Uh, sometimes entire Amanda Nunes fights. Part of being like a fringy fan of it and seeing it in chunks and clips, I love the job that the commentary team does on UFC fights. And that goes back to Mike Goldberg. It's all over, just like that. And the job that Joe Rogan has done through the years, I think he's a tremendous analyst. And then that leads into John Anik, who is the lead voice of UFC and has been uh, since Mike Goldberg departed the company. Uh, But John started working for the UFC in 2011 and, and has worked his way up the food chain. His voice for UFC is awesome. The soundtrack he provides for that sport is incredible. And he is a guy for a sport that I don't know much about, but I'm intrigued the hell out of. The job he does, like, I I just admire the heck out of him, and I, I've i wanted to, to be able to sit down and talk to him about broadcasting mixed martial arts, about broadcasting the UFC, and about his career on this platform for the longest time, and I am stoked that we finally got a chance to sit down and, uh, and do this last week. John is a guy that was not a mixed martial arts guy early in his career. Uh, he was a boxing guy, and working at ESPN... Because he had some background in combat sports, wound up as kind of ESPN's MMA guy a decade or so ago. And through that, wound up broadcasting Bellator. He broadcast Bellator 1. I believe through other interviews he's done, it was the second or third live MMA card he had ever been to in person. I mean, he he ran with this, and we'll talk a little bit about that broadcast on this podcast and, and where he has come from there, but he has built himself up into an incredibly reliable voice and a guy who does a tremendous job. And the thing I love most, UFC, MMA is hard because you never know when the ultimate thing is going to happen. If I'm broadcasting a baseball game, Sure, anything can happen at any time. Somebody could hit a home run in the first inning on the first pitch of the game. Big moment. The game's not over. If I'm broadcasting MMA, and we'll talk about this moment in particular, um, Ben Funky Askren and Jorge Masvidal, literally five seconds, actually, I mean, officially five seconds, but Askren was out probably two seconds in, the fight was over. And these guys just flapping gums at each other. Any chance they get.
Like, you've got to be ready because you never know when the big moment is going to happen and when the fight could end. And the ability to, to, to punctuate those moments, build that drama, and always be ready, it is an incredible skill set. Uh, John Anik is our guest this week on Play by Playcast, and I'm thrilled for you to hear this one. So I was hosting the Mouthpiece Boxing Show on the Boston Sporting News Radio affiliate 1510 The Zone in my home state, Massachusetts, for a long time, three or four years. We had been traveling to cover HBO pay-per-view events. So I was into combat sports and, and had the boxing bug something fierce. In terms of mixed martial arts, Gary Shaw, longtime boxing promoter, was launching Elite XC, which was a mixed martial arts initiative for him. And he called on a bunch of the boxing media to come cover his first MMA show in Tunica, Mississippi in 2007. So at that time, I don't know if I was an MMA naysayer, but I was definitely a boxing apologist and someone who was very <laughs> defensive of boxing. So when I went to cover that MMA show and there were dragons breathing fire and everything else, I found it a little bit off-putting at first. But once the fight started, I was captivated in, in a very serious way, but in the most efficient way possible, basically because of my boxing background, when ESPN – ESPN.com, I guess, is more appropriate. But when they were launching MMA Live in 2008, I was one of the few combat sports journalists, for lack of a better way to put it, in the building. So I had covered MMA by that point in time. I was getting the MMA bug. I had covered boxing extensively. So I was one of the only guys who was really, I think, considered to audition for MMA Live at ESPN.com. And even though I think at first I had a little bit of trepidation, um, once I really got into the sport, very quickly I sort of got this bug that I wanted to lean into uh, as opposed to look the other way. How did you learn about, like, how did you learn what this is called and what that is called and how to spot those types of things on the fly as you're looking? Well, I'm still learning, man. I mean, when that fight hits the ground, you can be sure Dana White wants me to touch my top lip to my bottom lip and shut the hell up, right, and, and give way to the analyst. I will never be a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Part of that's by choice. I mean, I've taken jiu-jitsu <laughs> classes, and, and I did not enjoy it. But there are a lot of layers to it. There are a lot of technicalities, and I can either come into it and sort of stay in my lane and play to my strengths as a classically trained broadcaster and sports guy and learn the sport along the way. Uh, or I can be a lifelong martial artist, which is a gap that I'm never going to be able to bridge or recover. So I played to my strengths early on. I found when I called my first MMA fight in 2009 that it kind of came naturally to me, and I just sort of played to my strengths as opposed to worried about my weaknesses. Obviously, I've shored up a lot of my mixed martial arts knowledge. I basically watched every UFC fight now for the better part of a decade, and I've been calling fights for nine years. So my technical knowledge is on a totally different level than it was when, when I called my first MMA show in 2009, but I'm still learning. I mean, I feel like I could drink six beers and respectfully and go call a football game, <laughs> whereas with this stuff, I can't have a sip or I'm going to be in over my head. So it, it's out of my wheelhouse. It'll probably always be more out of my wheelhouse than football or basketball, but uh, it's my life. It's the devil I know, and, and I hope I never have to live without it. You know. What was taking the couple Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes that you did like 
Well, it was fun at first. Uh, and then I just sort of started thinking, man, unless they let me stop to take notes, how am I going to sort of remember all the different steps to this Kimura suite? I think it certainly helped with some of the terminology for me going through that process. Um, but again, as I mentioned, you know, Dana White doesn't really want to hear from me when I have Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts and credentialed analysts, former UFC champions to my immediate right. So thankfully, when the jiu-jitsu world is really the heart of the fight, not much is asked of me. Um, but I think it was a good experience. You know, I took boxing lessons for a couple of years. You know, I don't consider myself a striker necessarily, but I would always prefer to do that and really enjoy that. And I probably found that I guess, more useful in terms of my commentary than the jujitsu stuff. Uh, so you, you said this a couple of times and I, and I want to touch on it, but the idea you said of sometimes learning to let your analyst handle play-by-play in certain situations. Um, and I've done a little amateur wrestling play-by-play, not actual amateur wrestling. Um, and I, <laughs> and, I, and I found like that, that tended to be something to lean on in that situation too, is once stuff starts happening, just try to get out and let them almost call the action. Uh, what's your approach in that area and how hard was it um, to do that? Because I feel like getting out of the way sometimes can, can be more difficult than we should make it. No, you're right. And certainly we're doing television for the most part and not radio. So you have to be comfortable being silenced because it's not dead air. Uh, when the crowd is involved or there's natural sound or anything else. But when I started with the UFC, I was in a two-man booth, and now it's almost exclusively in a three-man booth. So that's a totally different navigation in terms of how much real estate there is for the play-by-play guy to sort of inject himself into the conversation. Unlike football, where there are clear lines as to when the play-by-play guy is supposed to start and stop talking and the analyst has his grounds to get in there, MMA has a real blurred line when it comes to that. And even though in a perfect world, I would prefer that my analyst wouldn't be calling out every strike because largely that's what I'm charged with doing. It is what it is, right? Sometimes there's a huge blow and and they will call that out and that will segue into the why or the how or the real rub of the analytics in terms of what they're trying to provide. But I've had to adjust on the fly, you know, over a 13 fight card over seven hours, Joel. Sometimes there are times when maybe more will be asked of me during a fight because my analysts are, uh, you know, taking a breather or pacing themselves. And, and other times they might be wall to wall and I might not get a word in edgewise. But I think it's incumbent upon me uh, to recognize who is to my right, whether it's Joe Rogan or Daniel Cormier or anybody else. And, uh, you know, just recognize where I stand in that equation and make sure there's no traffic jam. Because to me, and I don't know if you agree or not, given your reps and your chops, but there's nothing worse than a traffic jam. And if that means they got to hear less of me, uh, so be it. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that a hundred percent. And the three-man booth concept, I, it lends does it lend itself to MMA in in your opinion because of the fact that you can kind of let the two experts go at it back and forth. It's a good question the way you framed it. I don't know. I don't know if I have a preference necessarily. I mean, there are certain nights, Joel, in terms of like the job execution where I'm in a two-man booth. I'm doing the post-fight interviews as well because Rogan's not there, and I'm hosting the post-fight show. So I can barely talk at the end of those nights. Selfishly, in a three-man booth, when Joe's there, I'm not doing the post-fight interviews. It's a lot less talking. So, you know, I think there are benefits to all of it. I do believe that a two-man booth 
probably works a little bit better in MMA, but it's just by a nose. I mean, I really, I'm pretty torn. I, I think we've had a lot of our best moments and best calls in a three-man booth, and you're certainly on to something when you talk about a powerful dynamic with, with Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier, just allowing them to go back and forth for 120 seconds if need be. So I could go both ways, but uh, it is harder for me to pick my spots in a three-man booth and therefore probably a more challenging execution overall. How quickly does a round go by for you? It really depends. Some of them fly by. Some of them take forever. I mean, I could certainly name the worst fights that I have ever called. Constantine Irokin versus Gabriel Gonzaga in the heavyweight division comes to mind. Those are the longest 15 minutes of my life other than pledging a fraternity or working out. So, you know, there are certainly rounds that rip off the clock right away and fight of the year type round of the year. Those things are very quick. But, yeah, there's a huge variance. But it is a marathon more than a sprint. And I have a lot of respect for the college basketball guys who maybe will do four two-and-a-half-hour games in one day during the NCAA tournament. That's our reality every time we crack a mic. It, it, it was amazing for me to go do a college football game in 2015. You blink, it's halftime. You get a 12-minute break to eat something. And then the second half rolls onward. It was 49-3. to three. I felt like I hadn't really even done anything juxtaposed against a, a seven-hour broadcast with 13 fights. So, uh, again, it's the devil I know now, but uh, there really is a, so much that goes into each and every show. And that's why I can't do 17 straight weeks. You know, the most we'll do is five and six weeks, and then I come home and collapse in my front door. <laughs> uh, you've talked about Joe Rogan. Um you've been very vocal about the fact that he not only should be nominated, but should probably already have one, if not multiple sports Emmys. Um, how does he make you better as a broadcast partner? Well, I appreciate you saying that in terms of his lack of national recognition. And I'm not the go-to guy when it comes to the awards in terms of how that all is handled, but it does surprise me as the lead analyst that he has been for a major sport for as long as he's been, why he doesn't get that type of acknowledgement. But I think he makes me better because the show feels bigger when he's there. And so I think it heightens my focus. I don't think it hurts my cause to be working with an A-list celebrity in terms of heightening my focus and making me sharp. Uh, we also, I just think share a passion for fighting and a similar sense of humor. So I think he loosens me up pretty easily because he makes me laugh pretty easily. But, I mean, there's so many ways he makes me better, right? I learn from him every show. I wish I had the steel trap memory like he does so that when I learn from him, I actually can retain it for the next show, which is not my reality. But I learned so much from this man just in terms of mixed martial arts, in terms of comedy and comedic timing on a broadcast. And uh, he's just been such a powerful force in our sport, you know, since I was in high school. And uh, every time I look to my right and he's there, I'm, I'm hum humbled to have that seat and feel like I – I kind of got to earn it every show. What's the line you have to walk um, when it comes to you talk about like comedic timing and being able to have a good time and inject a little bit of levity into a sport where, for lack of a better term, like there's two guys getting their asses kicked right in front of you, um, which is a very serious situation. Um, right. How do, how do you go about uh, piecing something together that way? So when I made my UFC broadcasting debut, it was January 20th, 2012. And, and certainly at that time, I had more pause when it came to letting my personality go. Even though when Dana White hired me late 2011, he pulled me into his office and he said, I don't want you to be Joe Rogan or anybody else. I want you to be yourself. That's why we hired you. Hmm. 
But I definitely had pause early on, and I do think Dana was really fine-tooth combing every word out of my mouth, every utterance over seven hours. So uh, it has been an evolution and a process for me. Now I am far more willing to let it go, not as much as I do on the Anakin Florian podcast, of course, (laughs) but I do let it go far more so now, and I think I'm, I'm more comfortable in my own broadcasting skin. All of that being said, I'm not looking for a self-indulgent broadcast. I do think there are broadcast teams out there that inherently it's just a very self-indulgent broadcast. It's not about the athlete. It becomes about them. And even though fans enjoy the personalities and sometimes those personalities in a broadcast setting can become as big or bigger than the athletes, that's not at all the mission. So it is a fine line that you have to walk. We are trying to engage and inform and and be entertaining and funny at times, yes, but uh, not by taking away from the athletes. And and I'm very cognizant to not make it a self-indulgent broadcast, if that makes any sense. Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting because I apply like what you started that answer with to any other sport and try to wrap my head around it. And it would be like if you were doing – the NFL and Roger Goodell calls you into his office and says, Hey, I've been parsing all of the words that you've said over the entire season. (laughs) Um, What is that vibe? Like, especially for a person like Dana White to, to say like, Hey, here's my thoughts of where you are and here's where we want you to be. So it's interesting, right? Because when I left ESPN and a lot of people thought I never should leave there, right? Because for a while as a broadcaster, the goal was to get to Bristol, uh, not to live in Bristol, Connecticut necessarily with all due respect, but to get to Bristol. And I was there for six years. And once you leave, there's no guarantees that you can barge that door back down. So I certainly put all of my eggs in the UFC and the MMA basket because I just believed in Dana and the sport, I think, more than anything else and and wanted to be a part of it and really wanted to do more live events. I was only getting live events few and far between in terms of play-by-play opportunities at ESPN. All of that being said, I definitely had to sort of check my journalist card at the door, and, and I am more promoter now than journalist. It's not as though we leave the context of a fight on the cutting room floor. Uh, But there is definitely a lean towards the positive and I am definitely a promoter and doing my best as I can on social media and on broadcast to try to promote as many of these 600 plus athletes as humanly possible. And that is a huge initiative and huge task and one that I take very seriously. And especially when you have a guy like Dana White is your boss who really cares about the details of every single voiceover and every single broadcast and has his hands all over the live production, uh, it can be tough and it can be thankless. But uh, it's what I signed up for. I feel like I've earned his trust and certainly become the lead guy, you know, back in 2017. And, uh, you know, again, I have to earn that seat every show. And I think sometimes when you have a boss like Dana, it can work in your favor because it does keep you sort of on the edge of the, of your seat and on the tip of your toes and, and you're not comfortable. Uh, and I think that can, can be a performance enhancer as much as at times, maybe I would like him to say nice show more than he does. Um, it's interesting because we've had this conversation uh, a couple of times. I got asked by a professor who had me speak to a class back in the spring. Uh, if a play by play broadcaster is a journalist, and uh, this is now a couple weeks in a row on this particular podcast where somebody has said, no, our job is as a promoter. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting word to kind of stick in the back of uh, a broadcaster, a play-by-play broadcaster's mind going forward in terms of what our actual true role um, can be. Right. Well, it's interesting because one of my former colleagues at ESPN, Josh Gross, said to me when I took the UFC job, he's like, you're going to have a harder job than you think just being a promoter. 
And he was right because early on, it was a hard transition for me. You know, I thought you could say, all right, here is this dude fighting for his job tonight. He's lost four in a row. And that's (laughs) not the way we set it up. And now I understand acutely why we don't set it up that way, even though I could still argue with you, Joel, that if you set up a fight as a must win and that the loser is going home, it's tremendously compelling for the viewer at home. And I think it immediately can can give you a rooting interest. But it was a hard transition for me. I think it's easier for me than maybe somebody in another sport because the UFC is truly a mixed martial arts promotion. So the word promoter naturally dovetails right off of that. But I think if I was working in the NFL, for example, I mean, and you're not like the preseason guy for a team, and I know you're embedded with the team, but if you're going week to week doing the Vikings one week and the Ravens the next week, you're really not a promoter. I mean, you are promoting the athletes as much as possible, but it's much more contextual than it is fluff, for for lack of a better way to put it. That's interesting from the idea of how you address certain topics in, in terms of like somebody's status. Like, I mean, the, the immediate thing I thought about was like, what do you say when Paige Van Zant walks into an octagon and it's her last contractual fight? Um, but knowing that your paycheck is coming from UFC and like, how do we talk about something like that on the air as the promotion and as a promoter? Right. That's actually a good example. And I don't even remember if we referred to that as a free agency fight for Paige Van Zandt on broadcast. That's not something that we were told not to do, but I think it's a good example of, uh, of the way you would sort of try to frame the conversation, but certainly there was no directive on that, but it's an interesting point you bring up. Um, your, your beginnings in MMA broadcasting were not with UFC. You started with Bellator, um, as the, as a play-by-play guy with Bellator one. Um, and I know you've gone back and listened to it in the past and you, you've you've said you've cringed listening back to it. Oh, um, God. <laughs> why? Well, I do think my voice has changed an octave. I mean, there are notes when I sing that I can't even hit any more. Part of that is just video game abuse. But all of the UFC calls, I think, have served to deepen my voice, which I think makes it hard to listen to the high pitch nature of some of my early calls. But it's not all cringeworthy. And again, as I sort of articulated with you earlier, I'm pleasantly surprised at certain things when I listen back because I wasn't over talking. I really was trying to stay in my lane. I wasn't trying to be some mixed martial arts expert. So there's some of those broadcasts that I'm proud of. But, oh, God, man, I just think I've learned so much about uh about how to sort of articulate oh god i don't know man it's just i don't know i was i was very young in the play-by-play space i remember when bjorn Rebney called and, and wanted me to do season one and i was thinking man they might have they might have got the wrong guy i had never called any combat sport in my life i had only done a handful of football and basketball i was freaking out i was more nervous doing bellator one in 2009 than making my UFC debut in 2012. And probably that those nerves were well-placed at that time. But uh, I think like you, like anybody else, there were just some forgettable uh, early moments as we sort of learned on the job. When it comes to staying in your lane, uh, obviously a large part of that is the the who of a fight and, and leaving the, the why to the guy sitting next to you. Um, you've talked before, though, about the fact that you know, football, I've got a pretty good sense of where my window is going to be. Basketball, if a guy goes to the free throw line, I know I have 30 seconds to detail somebody's story. Um, you have literally no idea how anything is going to unfold in front of you at any given time. 
right. how do you structure the idea of being able to, hey, it's the second round. I want to be able to tell you a little bit about X, Y, Z of this guy um, and getting that in appropriately. It's a great question, and I don't structure it. I think the only way is to not try to force things in. And when you start to structure it, given the way our sport plays out, it's forcing it. And sometimes you do have to bail on a story and you can't return to it. You know, oftentimes I talk about this featherweight contender, Shane Burgos, who at 16 years old had like a 49 degree curvature in his spine and had to have really invasive surgery. And nobody said that he was going to be able to fight. And there might be a viewer like you, Joel, that hasn't seen Shane Burgos's previous three, four, five, six UFC fights. So Am I going to tell that story every single time the guy fights? Well, maybe not, but probably five out of every six UFC fights. But there's no guarantee that I'm going to be able to get it in. And when he's walking out to the octagon, our American viewers are in commercial break and probably 80 percent of our viewers are in commercial break, you know, unless we're on pay-per-view. So it is a huge challenge. And I think like most play-by-play guys, I would say we probably only get to 20 or 25 percent of what we actually prepare Uh, But certainly there are clinch situations up against the fence or when a fight hits the ground and one fighter is in the closed guard of another fighter and there's not a ton going on. Maybe there's an opportunity there. Um, But sometimes even when we're showing like the octagon girl or the referee, I won't say, oh, and there's Ariane Celeste. I will use that time to tell a story. But the way the action unfolds is so fast and furious that you just can't be committed or forced on focused on forcing something in at a given time or, or you'll get burned time and time again. So that's the way I approach it. What do you, uh, what do you need to know going into a fight about people about like, what goes on your cards? Uh, how, do, how do those look when they lay out in front of you? So I start by taking our UFC fighter bios from our research department and I handwrite everything that I think is salient from that bio onto a fresh fighter card. Then I check my old notes, my previous fighter card. I have a library of like 5,000 of these things all handwritten. I'll check the, the fighter's previous card to see if there's any biographical information, children, family stuff, adversity, uh, previous jobs or life circumstances, anything that I think might be important to uh, to lay out again, then I'll add that to the card. I'll watch some film as I'm looking for new information, whether it's new interviews or, or new videos. I do have time with the fighters on either Tuesday or Thursday, so that is a part of what I put together. So you can see why we only get to 20 or 30 percent. You know, I try to give every athlete, you know, 90 minutes or so, unless we're in a situation where we have 15 fights and 30 fighters times 90 minutes is a lot of minutes. But, uh, you know, I always say if our fight card got delayed five hours, Joel, I could make good use of the time. I mean, we are overprepared. There's no such thing. So uh, there's not, no detail that I wouldn't put on a fighter card. What are those meetings like when you sit down with uh, fighters on a Tuesday or a Thursday? Sometimes more fruitful than others, if I'm being <laughs> candid. I mean, sometimes that is is weight-cutting day for a lot of fighters, so they don't really have a ton to say. And I will try to be in a pretty good prep state by the time I show up at that meeting so that if they have answered a question multiple times to the media already, I, I won't try to be repetitive with them. Um, but a lot of it's technical because the fighters are in there, so they'll talk game plan stuff with us that they won't share with the media because they know it won't be shared until the actual fight is going on. But it's not unlike a, a meeting with an offensive or defensive coordinator on the football side. It's it's pretty intensive and, and pretty intimate, and, 
and you're just getting a type of access that I don't think is afforded to a lot of the media, you know, leading up to the fight. Do you have conversations with your analysts too, be it Joe, be it you know, Daniel, be it whoever, um, going into media, going into fights, basically saying, "Hey, here's what I have. Here, what do you have? What do you want to see? Um, what have you heard? And how much of what they know do you want to be aware of so that you can set them up best going into something?" Certainly there will be times where there's something specific to set up and not even so much an obvious circumstance where a guy has a teammate fighting, but there might be a certain angle that an analyst wants to hit on, or there's something in their past that aligns them with that fighter. So we try to be on the same page with that. I mean, Rogan and I almost always in the dressing room, he'll be like, dude, what are we thinking for tonight? And I'll mention a fight that jumps off the card and we'll just get into it a little bit. People always ask what Joe and I talk about and, I say, yeah, we talk about coffee and certain things, but again, it almost always circles back to fighting and calf kicks and what's trending in the game right now. So I think there's a lot of that that happens really leading up to the fight. But we also are friends too. I mean, especially the the fighters that I work with, we all arrive early on. We're all in those fighter meetings together in a non-COVID-19 climate. We're breaking bread together. And even for Dominic Cruz and Daniel Cormier, two of my best friends in the world, when those guys first started, I would go to their hotel rooms. We would like rehearse the walks. I was doing that for their purposes, not mine, of course, at that point. Um, but there's a lot of intimate contact between me and my broadcast partners. And uh, even though I, I would say in a perfect world i would have a consistent broadcast partner instead of having work with 15 or 20 ufc teams i love getting all the different egos and personalities it, it really is a special part of the gig for me i was gonna say that's got to be an interesting challenge too because it it keeps you from finding a comfort zone which i have to imagine in some respects is really good yeah and i guess comfort zone there could be a negative connotation there where you get too comfortable right, right, but right. brian stan who was my former broadcast partner, played football at Navy, decorated U.S. Marine. He went on to uh, to just the business world. But he and I were working almost exclusively in a two-man booth together. And, you know, people were starting to dig it. And I sort of said to him when he left, like, man, we were just getting started in terms of this chemistry. And, and that really hurt me and hit me hard when he left. But uh, mm-hmm. I think it was – a necessary thing for me to experience. And uh, now I'm not surprised at, at whoever is to my right. But yeah, I do think for a lot of people, when you think about some of the great NFL tandems, I, I do think generally, and maybe you would disagree, but I think generally you get a sense pretty early on as to whether or not you have chemistry with a broadcast partner. Yep. But certainly it's something that develops over time. And if you work a hundred shows with a guy or every week with a guy, I think it stands to reason that you'll be better and you will interrupt each other less. Maybe there's not a great answer to this question, but I, I thought of it while you were um, mentioning this a couple uh, questions ago, and, and you said, uh, talked about <laughs> you're usually in, in a break when fighters are coming to the octagon to your American viewers. Um, do you consider the fact that you're on to various different parts of the world and I don't does, does different things play differently and different? I, I don't know. How does the fact that you're not just broadcasting to maybe one sect of the world and one sect of society impacts what you do. Maybe it does. Well, there's certain, yeah, it does. I mean, there's certain sensitivities and, and not to get too specific on you, but you can't just say, Oh, this guy played rugby. You have to specify that he played rugby league. Those are majorly different things in Australia. Hmm. So there are certain senses, sensitivities culturally and in different parts of the world that you have to make sure that you are aware of, but I won't, 
I won't not say, you know, back to ESPN or, you know, this is UFC fight out on ESPN back after this. I won't not say that because we're on a different broadcast partner in a different country. So I don't totally evergreen everything and steer clear of certain things that will only play in the U.S., but there are definite things that I've learned over almost a decade on the job that uh, that I've had to be aware of just to make sure that I'm, you know, not offending certain people in certain parts of the world, you know, because I do think there's sort of this American arrogance theme out there. Uh, and even though I think it's overblown, you know, I don't want our international viewers to think that we all think that we're the center of the world all the time <laughs> because we're not. That's uh, I, I have no idea what the difference between rugby and rugby league is. So I'm, that that would be i'm glad you pointed that out because that would be one of those things where i wouldn't even think about it um but sometimes you got to learn the hard way you know i mean i've had instances where i've uh i've messed up you know high profile soccer players names and uh still have half of the uk after me 10 years later um here's the 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 one big question i i was i think most curious about um I didn't want to lead with it, but it it's the one thing i really want to dive into is you have talked about the idea of you better be ready for any instance in any situation. Um, right. Just in general, not in, in necessarily UFC play-by-play. Um, but when it comes to what you do in the UFC, and I know you get asked about uh, Masvidal Askren a lot as far as uh, the uniqueness of fights and what you see and the outcome of that one. But like, right. I'm thinking from a play-by-play standpoint, like, all right, we're going to get into this. I'm going to get settled in. Here's how we're going to approach this. You literally say fight clock brought to you by Modelo and then they're screaming and the thing is over. Um, how, what is, take me inside the idea of just how ready you have to be at every second for um, not just a fight to end, but some sort of amazing moment or amazing history to break out in front of your eyes. Right. Well, part of the reason why I only get to 20% of my notes is because you got to be real careful looking down at your card. And that's why I handwrite a lot of stuff so I can commit it to memory because if you look down for a second, you can miss it. And I nearly missed that Jorge Masvidal knockout. But no matter how many times we have a quick knockout, Joel, you're never fully prepared for it, right? For the fight to end five or eight seconds in. And we've had a lot of, I've done a lot of fights that have ended less than 30 seconds in, but you're never totally in your realm when it happens. And thankfully, uh, I was able to execute that Masvidal knockout call. And some people think it was my best call that I've ever done. But man, I mean, when you go from reading a sponsor to all of a sudden see a guy literally get put to sleep by a knee in, in three, not even five seconds. Uh, it, it's just crazy. And again, there's really no other combat sport. I mean, it, very rare would that happen in, in any other combat sports. So uh, you, you learn, you know, you, you either win or you learn, whatever the saying is. But I certainly learned a lot that uh, at the beginning of a fight, and, and you notice from Masvidal's next fight, he came out quickly as well. You know, you got to be prepared for that. And uh, thankfully, to whatever degree I was. Kevin Harlan has been on this podcast and, and said that at the end of a broadcast, you should always feel exhausted because if you're not, um, you haven't necessarily done your job to the fullest extent uh, possible. You have to be just thoroughly worn out at the end of a fight because of that mere fact that you have zero letdown time at any point. No. Oh, I'm cooked, man. I mean, I have some videos up on my Instagram page after certain broadcasts where I am just 
totally done. And the post-fight show that I have hosted at times, excuse me, after pay-per-view events, that's really an exercise in adrenaline, but I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy in the play-by-play space to have to call a seven-hour live event and then do a post-fight show afterward. But yes, I mean, we leave it all in the octagon or on the base of the octagon, however you want to put it. I'm, I'm totally cooked. And again, I, it's sort of a theme to, to our chat, but it's just a very different beast than a football game. And I don't know how I would hold up doing 17 straight Sundays in the NFL. But I would challenge any play-by-play guy out there to do five of these in a six-week span and see how you hold up. And part of it is just the voiceovers in advance, all the prep, if you think about 24 or 26 fighters, and then executing for seven hours. That is not just a live sporting event, Joel, but it's really a promotion. I mean, we're always promoting the next live event. Uh, There's just a lot that goes into one of these shows. It's more like a television show and a sporting event combined than just a quick little basketball or football game. So uh, this is my beast, but uh, I don't know how long the voice is going to hold up, if I'm being honest. You know, how hard are, are those big moments as well? Because there, the knee-jerk reaction is for you just to, like, you're a human being. You have the reaction of anybody on a couch. You just scream, yell, um, you probably want to yell some expletives. Uh, right. <laughs> how do you... Uh, how do you still keep yourself focused in the mind of I'm, I'm a fan, but I'm a broadcaster here and I need to be able to capture the right moment. Um, when fight after fight, week after week, you're just taken completely aback potentially by what's happening in front of you. Well, right. It's tricky because you don't want to always be shouting. Oh, but (laughs) that's my natural reaction. And I know early on my boss, Craig Borsari said to me, just be cognizant, cognizant of it, especially early on in the night, because you have to leave room in your register as the fights get bigger. If you're screaming, Oh, with veins popping out of your neck, fight one of the night with nobody in the building. Uh, you know, when, and, and by the way, you could also be saying, oh, there's a left hand instead of just the, oh, right. You could actually be calling out the strike. So yes, I do have to be cognizant of the fan in me to not just let it rip like that all the time. But, uh, we try to have fun with it, right? Because it is combat sports and they're not defending a rim. They're defending their face. (laughs) It's unlike anything else you could be doing in the play by play space. So, uh, I, I try not to to steer away from it too much because I do think there is some fan engagement that plays into it. And I do think it's very relatable, even though I think for play-by-play guys, when we see them go to that announcer cam, we could do without them showing the world what we look like as we're making these calls. <laughs> but uh, I do think the fans relate to it and relate to us because, to your point, Week in and week out, we're, it's the theater of the unpredictable. And uh, obviously, there are things in the NFL and the NBA that happen that are wildly unpredictable. But in our sport, uh, it's a little bit different, as I know you can attest. I, I do enjoy the video, though, of like Daniel Cormier like falling asleep on your shoulder in amazement. How about that? Amazing. <laughs> um, how do you build that excitement over the course of a card? Because like, what if the second fight of the night, someone knocks somebody out in four seconds um how like how do you not get excited for that but also keep into perspective that you know nunez is fighting for the title in two hours well certainly if there's a quick knockout and uh, someone is heaven forbid separated from consciousness 
there is no way to underplay that moment. And my bosses don't want me to underplay that moment necessarily, right? Because that could end up being the next champion. And, and you can be sure right. that that's part of their story. The historical. Exactly. You want that call uh, to be something that uh, helps promote that athlete later on. But it isn't a title fight. And I think for me, it was really good that I got to cut my teeth with the UFC learning the bottom half of this roster and doing all of the smaller shows so that when it did come time for me to cap the biggest fights in UFC history, I knew exactly how to go about it. You know, some play-by-play guys have shtick, they have catchphrases, go-to lines, a fight ends, it's like hitting a button. For me, I want it to be its own unique historical context. I want every moment to be organic. I almost never think about what I'm going to say. There's actually only been one instance where I've actually thought about a call before I even got to the arena to try to maybe work the word immortality into a Demetrius Johnson fight. Other than that, I've never even thought about it because I want it to live and breathe and be organic. And sometimes I don't have much of a voice left at that point of the night, but uh, energy is never an issue, right? There is nothing in professional sports for me, quite like the tension of a UFC championship fight. And sometimes I say that at the beginning of a fight and maybe it's to my own detriment. I know before one fight, I said, I need a Xanax right now. I've only, I think I've only taken a Xanax two or three times in my life, but I know it calmed (laughs) me down. But in that moment, I was, I was tense. I was a fan. I felt like my team was in the Super Bowl, and yet I'm the guy that has to talk during this thing. And it'll be that way for me, candidly, when Daniel Cormier fights at UFC 252. Because, you know, you're so emotionally invested and yet this is your job to talk. And thankfully, once the fight starts, I'm not thinking about any of that stuff. But there are a lot of challenging things that that make up this job for sure. Yeah, I was going to say there are not a lot of people. I, I mean, I guess this day and age in the playoffs, it happens a lot with people that are no longer playing. But there are not a lot of broadcasters that work side by side with an active competitor in the sport. How does that change things for you? Well, once the fight starts, thankfully, it doesn't change things at all. But certainly D.C. is one of my best friends. And on August 15th, he will walk out and fight for the UFC heavyweight championship. So when he is walking out, it's a little bit difficult for me because I want every word to be perfect because I know he's going to watch it back. And I (laughs) I just want to to maximize every moment of the broadcast for him. But once the fight starts, the last thing I'm thinking about is my friendship. And if anything – you know, I want the other guy to do well, so it gives me an opportunity uh, to to make sure that I'm doing things even-handedly. What was tricky, actually, if I'm being totally honest, was the last time Stipe and DC fought. DC dominated the first 16 minutes, even though he lost the fight. And I thought I capably capped the fight for Stipe and gave him his moment for sure. But I got off the air, and a lot of people on social media felt like I had called the fight for DC. Hmm. And here I am thinking the guy literally dominated the first 16 minutes of the fight. What do you want me to say? I watched the fight back and DC dominated the first 16 minutes. You know, I I don't know what people were looking for me to say about Stipe when I felt like the fight was one sided. So I call it like I see it, Joel. I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, I'm not here to make friends. I've had my dear friends be very upset with me. I've actually had DC call me after his teammates have fought when he has not liked what I have said. So it is what it is. We always are able to bury the hatchet and uh, it does go both ways. You know, I feel like there have been times and I know I'm getting a little bit long winded here, but there have been times where I'll go through a six or seven week span where I'm putting out a fire every show where there's some athlete or some coach or some trainer on one side of one fight 
that's unhappy with something that we have said or done. And it's just the nature of the beast. In a perfect world, you wouldn't be calling fights that your friends are involved in. But uh, at this point, I kind of feel like it's the least of my problems. And uh, we're just going to keep extinguishing these fires and, and really just trying to do the best I can and call it like I see it. That's it. I just have a couple more things for you. I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, but uh, what is this era of calling fights like for you? Because your sport in particular relies so much on how the crowd reacts to what they see. Uh, how do you broadcast a silent fight like you have over the last couple months? Well, it's going to be really interesting for us to look back at this stretch in UFC history when we were broadcasting and doing live sporting events when most people were not. But there's been an evolution, right? Like we started in Jacksonville and they could hear every single word, the athletes, the commissioners, the judges, the referees, which has to every be single good word. for you in some instance, right? Like, Are there things you never heard before in a fight while you're broadcasting that you, that you did? Well, I think they're, they're a thing. I mean, for us, I don't, I don't really see the upside in having the athletes or the referees or anybody hear what we right. can say. But, but in the inverse, like hearing something being yelled out of a corner that maybe you would never have heard otherwise. Yeah, I think there's certainly some upside to that. And yeah, maybe even times where I would uh, try to lay out or take the cans off to listen into something. So, yeah, I mean, we have early prelims where there isn't a big crowd. We're used to hearing some of the True. louder corners in general. But when we got to Jacksonville and we're sort of getting conditioned to that broadcasting environment for the first time, it was like, holy piss, man, our voices are <laughs> echoing off the walls. What are we going to do here? Then we got to the apex in Las Vegas and there was plexiglass up and there was at least some of that audio that was bouncing back in our faces. But that was not at all ideal uh, that the athletes could hear our every word. But for us, the fans, to your point, are a performance enhancer. And you talk about coffee and adrenaline and the magnitude of a UFC title fight, but there's nothing that gets you going quite like the fans. So yeah, we've had to sort of muster up the energy without them. I do think you're in a tunnel though. I mean, you've heard me say this before probably, but once you put the headset on and you're calling fights, mm -hmm. you're focused on the action and the crowd at home. The last thing you're thinking is, man, I wish there were fans here to provide more energy. So it hasn't been really an issue for us. I think a lot of my broadcast partners, as famous as they are, absolutely love the fact that they can go take a piss and not have to worry about navigating the fans over seven <laughs> hours of a live event. Um, but, man, I'll be first in line with thanks when uh, when we get the fans back. And uh, hopefully it's 2021, but I can't see a scenario whereby the fans are in the building this year. We'll see. Uh, what else is next for, for John Ennick? Like, obviously, being that the, the helm of UFC is is number one, but how many other things do you want to add into your portfolio as far as um, spreading your wings a little bit? Well, you know, I did get the chance, and I'm thankful to Fox and FS1 for allowing me to call a major national college football game back in 2015, yeah. and that sort of set off a little bit of a bug in me in terms of wanting to do the NFL and to do football because I think for a guy who grew up in a New England Patriots fan when they were the laughing stock of the league in the 1980s, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many losses I witnessed firsthand in Foxborough. That's just always been a part of me and my family and growing up in an NFL home. So to do that at some point 
would really be a thrill for me. And if I never got the chance to do that, I don't know if I would feel wholly satisfied, but I'm busy. I'm immersed in doing the UFC. I can never imagine my professional life without the UFC. I got three kids, nine and under as well. So I'm certainly busy and, and not thinking so much about the future as much as I am trying to sort of keep myself immersed in the present. But man, I love the NFL, and uh, I don't know how I'd feel going 17 straight Sundays, though, Joel. I mean, I know you can speak to uh, to a lot of that grind, but part of it is nice to get a UFC show in the can on Saturday night, fly home, and to be able to enjoy the, the National Football League. So we'll see, but I, I do hope that at some point in my broadcasting career that, that football is a part of the future. Yeah, no, where it gets hairy is when it's uh, you have something on Saturday, like a football game on Saturday night, and then basketball Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. That's where. See, I'm telling you, I don't know how you guys do it, man. I know <laughs> it sounds like I've registered com- some complaints over the last 45 minutes, but I have a lot of respect for that preparation as well when you have to turn the page as quickly as you guys do. John, how do people find you on uh, social media um, or get more John Anik in their lives? Oh, Instagram, Twitter, it's it's John underscore Anik, J-O-N underscore A-N-I-K, and uh, the podcast is live, AnikFlorianPodcast.com. <sighs> All right, that's John Anik joining us here on PXPCast two weeks in a row. You heard it from uh, Bob Beeler last week, and you hear it again from John Anik this week. The role of the play-by-play guy is sometimes promoter. You are promoting the product in front of you. You are promoting the people in front of you. Yes, you know, we're journalists. We, we've had this discussion a couple of weeks in a row now. Like, what is the what is the true role of play-by-play person? And there are situations where, y- yes, you are a journalist and a reporter, but presenter and promoter. You're promoting the event you're at. Sometimes for the person who's putting it on or the school that's putting it on. But you are promoting the sport. You're promoting the players. You're trying to get people to buy into, care about whatever be it the team the players the company the sport you're an ultimate promoter and that's a good word i think to put a cap on what we do and how we can do it going forward many thanks to john anik for joining us uh the newest voice in the nhl will join us next week everett Fitzhugh on the broadcast team for the seattle kraken he's here on pxp cast a week from today. Until then, my name is Joel Gannett, the music is Marshmallow, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.